My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so grateful that you're all here. Uh, it takes a lot for anybody who's maybe visiting. We know that it, it takes a lot to come into a new community, so welcome. We're so glad that you're here. I, along with Adobe, would love to meet you at the Connections table in the back. Um, we have an awesome preaching team, don't we? Don't you think? And uh, if you head to our website, you can see the group of people that regularly preach here at Mill City in addition to some guests. And so today, we don't technically have a guest. We have one of our own, Dr. John Dunn here, who's going to be preaching. And I want to say about, about John, he teaches the New Testament classes at Bethel Seminary, which is where we became friends. Um, but this is also a guy who loves the church. This is also a guy who loves people and has maybe a little bit too much fun, but mostly <laughs> a lot of fun. And it, we are so honored to have him here as a part of our community, as a covenant member, also on our leadership team, which is the term we use for kind of like our board here, and on our preaching team. And so we're so excited for him to continue this conversation, Why Church? So I wanted a chance to introduce him and invite you all to give him a round of applause and welcome him to the stage today. Thanks, John. Thank you. Well, good morning, Mill City. It's uh, wonderful to be able to provide the sermon for our service together today. In the series that we've been doing for the last several weeks, you know, why church? We've been trying to answer that, that question. And today, what I want to do is I want to think a little bit further about what we've been looking at, sort of the rise of the early church and all of that, and to consider where the church fits in the big God story, the, the meta-narrative of Scripture. Where do we as the church fit into that story since the story is still being told? I want to focus on the way that we are invited to enter into that larger story of God, what he is doing in the world through the mission of the church. And as the church, we are invited to participate in God's mission because we have been gifted with and we are guided by the same Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost to kick off the church's mission. Would you join me in a word of prayer together as we begin? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God on mission. Please be with us today as we consider this calling that the church has and how we have been equipped for it. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. For whatever reason, God has always wanted to partner with humans. Think back to the very first chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. God originally commissioned Adam and Eve to rule and reign on his behalf, not as exploitative tyrants, but as loving image bearers animated by God's breath who were tasked with ruling wisely. But of course, Adam and Eve failed at that commission. And the story of salvation history, the story of the whole biblical narrative, is one of repeated failure, one after another. The mission of God, then, is about how God took on humanity to deal with the problem of human rebellion to God's rule, to restore that original commission for humans to rule on God's behalf by doing it himself in the person of Jesus, and to empower humans to live into that kingdom reality in the present, even as we are signposts of the coming fullness of the kingdom when all things are restored. The mission of God affirms that God's original purposes will not be thwarted, that sin does not have the final say, and that we will one day reign with Christ upon a renewed earth forever. We can see where the story of God's mission has been, 
and we can see where the story of that mission is going. The church's mission then fits within that broader story, and we find ourselves in the midst of it. And I would like us to think about this today in terms of the Christian calendar. Here at Mill City, we're familiar with the seasons of Advent and Lent at the very least because we celebrate these annually. But if you grew up in a liturgical church context, you might be aware of the fact that we are presently in a season called ordinary time. Doesn't sound very interesting, right? Why would there be a whole season dedicated to what's normal, right? Other periods of the Christian calendar are much, much more interesting, right? Advent builds up into Christmas, and then we get Epiphany, right? Forty days of Lent are followed by Easter. Then after Easter, we get Pentecost in early summer, and then we get ordinary time. It's kind of like whoever came up with the Christian calendar wasn't creative enough to come up with something else, right? It's sort of how I think a lot of people misunderstand the way that the Hogwarts houses work, if you're familiar with uh, Harry Potter, right? It's like, you know, those who go to Gryffindor are brave. Those who go to Slytherin are ambitious. Those who go to Ravenclaw are clever. And those who go to Hufflepuff are everybody else. Now, I think that's an inappropriate way to think about Hufflepuff, and uh, I actually think that Hufflepuff is the best house, but we can talk about that some other time. But just like I think that that's a misunderstanding of how Hufflepuff works, I also think that's a misunderstanding of how ordinary time works. Ordinary time is the longest season of all in the Christian calendar. And if you think about the Christian calendar for a moment, you can see how it cyclically reflects the life of Jesus and then moves on into the life of the church. Ordinary time in the yearly cycle is a reminder of where we are in the bigger narrative of salvation. Ordinary time reminds us that as Christians, we are spirit-empowered believers living in the light of Pentecost and living prior to Advent. Every year at Advent, which we're about to celebrate here in just a bit, we put ourselves back into the lives of Jewish people living before the advent of Christ, before the awaited Messiah. We put ourselves in the position of Israel longing and mourning and yearning because it precisely mirrors our situation 2,000 years later as we await the second advent, which is something that we explored last advent in our series on Revelation. This cycle then of the Christian calendar reminds us of what theologians refer to as the already and not yet tension of the kingdom. The kingdom is already here, and yet it is not yet fully here. The church's mission is then conducted within that tension. We experience the reality of the kingdom, but we are also acutely aware of its absence. And this is a truth that we've perhaps all been awakened to afresh in the past couple of years. But in the midst of the chaos and the uncertainty and indeed the not yet of the kingdom, it is the work of the Spirit in our lives that chiefly highlights the already. Paul talks about the Spirit as a kind of down payment or guarantee of what's to come. 
Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospel of John that when he departs, he will send a helper until he returns, referring to the Spirit. And the Spirit is even now transforming us and conforming us to the image of Christ. And yet, we still live in a broken and fallen world with evil found all over our neighborhoods and our news feeds. And so today, I want to invite us to consider how we, the church, have received the Spirit as a gift and a guide to undertake God's mission in ordinary time. And I want us to think about each of those in turn, beginning with this idea that the, that the Spirit is a gift. If it is the case that the Spirit is a gift to us, what exactly is a gift? When we think about gifts in the 21st century, we tend, to, we tend to think of something that is given to another person with no strings attached. And we call this a pure gift. It's the idea that there's no compensation that's needed, there's no reciprocity, there's no expectation of anything to be given back in return. But let's think about this a little bit further. Let's imagine a scenario in which one of your co-workers, perhaps somebody who's more of an acquaintance than a close friend, decides to get you a gift for your birthday. Is the thought not going to cross your mind, oh shoot, I need to make sure I get them a gift for their birthday once it comes around, right? Or perhaps let's think about Christmas, which is just around the corner. Most likely you've already begun to think of a list of gifts that you want to get friends and family, right? Think about those gifts that you intend to get for your siblings. Does the thought not cross your mind that you need to get a gift for them that's going to be comparable in value to what they're going to end up getting you, right? Think of one last scenario in which you're invited to a wedding. The invitation doesn't say that you're only invited if you bring us a gift, but culturally we know it's expected, and the registry is provided as a not-so-subtle reminder Right? The point is that in our present-day culture, we know that the notion of a pure gift doesn't actually work. In fact, philosophical discussions have gone on where philosophers have said, you know what, there really is no such thing as a gift. But that it's not the case that gifts don't exist. It's that our thinking about gifts have gotten muddled over the years. It actually wasn't until the 18th century with the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, that this idea of a pure gift even became prominent. People in the ancient world, people in, in the ancient world living in the time of the Bible, never thought about gifts like that. Gifts were given to initiate and to maintain relationships. Gifts were given to initiate and to maintain relationships. And so naturally, gifts were given with the expectation of return because otherwise, the relationship would cease. Allow me to point out a helpful illustration of this that a friend once introduced to me from the TV show, The Big Bang Theory. For those of you who don't know, the show is basically about a group of scientists, the main one being Sheldon, who live next door to a very attractive and very down-to-earth woman named Penny, with whom they all struggle to relate. And there's this wonderful bit about gifts in the second season in this episode called The Bath Item Gift Hypothesis. It's a holiday episode. 
And during this holiday episode, Penny incidentally mentions that she got Sheldon a neighbor gift. And unexpectedly, Sheldon reacts with some concern to this news. Why would you do such a thing? Sheldon asks to Penny's complete surprise. And Sheldon goes on to explain, oh, Penny, I know you think you're being generous, but the foundation of gift giving is reciprocity. You haven't given me a gift. You've given me an obligation. But Penny tries to alleviate Sheldon's concern, saying, you don't need to get me anything in return, but of course I do, Sheldon responds. The essence of the custom is that I now have to go out and purchase for you a gift of commensurate value and representing the same perceived level of friendship as that represented by the gift you've given me. <laughs> Sheldon is clearly distraught by this news that Penny has a gift for him. But he conceives of a foolproof plan to make sure that he does not over or under reciprocate. The plan is that he would go out and purchase multiple gift bags of varying value and keep them tucked away in another room. Once Penny has revealed her gift to him, he would know precisely which gift bag was most comparable in value, and he would give that gift bag to her. Then, sometime later, having kept all the receipts, he would return all the rest for a full refund. So when it finally comes time to exchange gifts, Sheldon unwraps Penny's present to find a napkin. He's a bit nonplussed. He doesn't know what to make of such a pedestrian gift. And then Penny tells him to turn the napkin over. And after doing so, Sheldon begins to lose his balance, clearly in shock at what's on the other side. It's a note, and it reads, To Sheldon. Live long and prosper, Leonard Nimoy. And of course, Leonard Nimoy is the actor who played Spock in the original run of Star Trek, a legendary icon of Sheldon's. Penny incidentally explains how she got the napkin. He came into the restaurant, sorry the napkin's a little dirty, he wiped his mouth with it. At which point, Sheldon abruptly returns to his feet, stumbling in disbelief, visibly shaking, and staring incredulously at the napkin before him. I possess the DNA of Leonard Nimoy? <laughs> A thought suddenly occurs to him, and Sheldon runs back into the other room, returning with every single gift bag that he had purchased. And at the sight of this, Penny exclaims, Sheldon, what did you do? And Sheldon responds with, I know, it's not enough, is it? And then rather awkwardly and unexpectedly, Sheldon moves in to give Penny a hug. These scenes from this episode are wonderful for many reasons. Sheldon rightly articulates that the no-strings-attached approach to gift-giving is not in keeping with the origin of the custom, which is about reciprocity. Sheldon's assumption, however, that gifts must always be symmetrical and proportional or of relative value is comically upended by Sheldon's reaction to the superabundant gift that he received from Penny. And in response, he gave all the gift bags that he had and even threw in a hug to signify his immense appreciation for the, for the great gift that he received. Of course, in the gospel, we've received something far greater than the DNA of Leonard Nimoy. We've received God's very self in the person of the Spirit. Because in the gospel, the gift and the gift giver are one and the same. 
In the gospel, we have received God. And we receive God's gift of himself by faith. We do not deserve it, and we do not earn it. Remember, gifts were given in the ancient world to initiate and to maintain relationships. And so out of immense gratitude for God's gift, we give gifts back to God. Again, not to earn God's gift because we already have it. And we can't take credit for the gifts that we give back to God because the gifts we give back to God are part of the gift that he gave to us. Our gifts back to God are part of the Spirit's work within us, the fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives. Take a look at Galatians 5, in which Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Here in Galatians, Paul is reinforcing this idea that the good that we do is the product of the Spirit's work in us. In context, Paul is contending that the Gentiles in Galatia do not need to embrace Jewish customs like circumcision in order to be accepted by God because they've already been embraced by him as seen by the work of the Spirit in their midst and their justification before him on the basis of faith. And here in this passage, Paul wants the Galatians to recognize that if the Spirit is producing the fruit outlined here in their lives, then there is no law, not even the law of Moses, that could find fault with them. Who, being characterized by the ninefold fruit of the Spirit here, would go on to murder, to cheat, or to steal? The law cannot condemn the person manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Another great place to see this play out is in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you've been a Christian for some time, you're probably very familiar with the first two verses here. They affirm that salvation is by grace through faith. They affirm that we did nothing to earn God's gift, but the verses don't stop there. They go on to tell us that although we did not earn God's gift, that nevertheless God's gift includes making us into people who do good works. We are his workmanship. God is at work in us, and we were made for good works. Now, this isn't some backdoor route into boasting or achieving God's gift or earning God's gift. We've already received that gift through faith, as Paul explains, and the gift and the good gifts that we give back are part of that same gift that God gives to us. Because all gifts are designed to lead to more gifts, as we demonstrate at birthdays and weddings and indeed Christmas. And we have received a tremendous gift, and so we continue to give gifts. So the Spirit is a gift to empower us in ordinary time. And for all the uncertainty that ordinary time brings, the Spirit is also our guide. 
As I mentioned, ordinary time is the longest season of the Christian calendar, and it also appears like it may end up being the longest era of salvation history. How much longer will it go on for? How are we to live out the mission of God in the 21st century, 2,000 years after the events of Calvary, with all of the unique challenges that we face as Christians today? Professor N.T. Wright has a very helpful metaphor for thinking through these issues. If we are indeed a part of a larger story of God's work in the world, what if we played with that dramatic metaphor a bit further and considered God's story to be like a theatrical performance with multiple acts, like a kind of Shakespearean play? It's a story that has not yet ended, and we're invited to be a part of that story in its final act. We know how the final act began with Pentecost, and we know how that final act will end with the return of Christ. But the only trouble is we're not quite sure when the story is going to end. So if we stick with the dramatic metaphor for a moment, What are the actors of a play meant to do in such a situation? Well, the response should be improv. The actors should improvise as they wait for the signal that the play is over. So then the question is, what does good improv look like? Are the actors supposed to do whatever they want? Or does the play itself provide some direction for the actors? Good improv, N.T. Wright explains, is in keeping with where the story has been and with where that story is going. And each actor has a specific part to play. And so their improvisation should be consistent with the role that they're playing. When I think of this insight, I'm reminded of one of my favorite moments from the TV show, The Office. If you don't know the show, There's this wonderful episode where Michael Scott, the regional manager of the Scranton branch of Dunder Mifflin, a paper supply company, decides to take up some improv acting classes. Perhaps you know the episode. In the first scene that Michael Scott is placed in, there is this woman who initiates by skipping around and pretending to lick a lollipop. At which point, Michael enters the scene by pretending to kick down a door with an imaginary gun, shouting, Boom! Detective Michael Scarn, I'm with the FBI. Michael Scarn being Michael Scott's James Bond-style alter ego. The episode continues with multiple examples like this of Michael Scott inserting himself into scene after scene with an imaginary gun. The other scenes include Michael's response to a psychic reading, and my favorite, when he enters the scene of a pregnant woman looking for her doctor by bursting into the room declaring things like, I know where you hid the diamonds. I've been on to you and your friends for weeks. The reason why the improv is so bad is because it's out of context. It has nothing to do with the scenes that Michael has been placed in, the scenes created by his acting partners. And despite the guidance of his acting coach, Michael continues to bring out the imaginary gun in scene after scene. Each example is bad improv because it doesn't fit the story that Michael has been placed in. And so as we think about improvising faithfully as Christians in this grand narrative that we find ourselves in, we rely on the work of the Spirit to lead and to guide us for God's mission. 
We want to keep the story of redemption in mind and to be mindful of where it is headed. We will one day reign with Christ, as Adam and Eve were originally commissioned to do in the garden. At that time, God will make all the wrong things right. He'll wipe away every tear and make an end to sickness, sorrow, sin, and even Satan himself. He'll renew heaven and earth and dwell among his people with unmediated and unrestricted access to his presence. So we don't know when the story is going to end, but we do know how it's going to end. If we know where the story has been and where it is headed, that helps to give shape to our roles within the story in the present. That helps to give us some guidance for what faithful improv ought to look like as we rely on the guidance of the Spirit during this ordinary time in which we find ourselves. Earlier in the story of God, the prophets of Israel in the Old Testament anticipated a new covenant. They anticipated the new covenant era in which we live. Jeremiah declares in chapter 31 that God will put his law in the minds of the people and that he would write the law upon their hearts. In other words, the new covenant will be characterized by the transformation of new covenant members. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God declares that he will cleanse and purify his people one day by giving them a new heart and removing the heart of stone from within them, putting his spirit in them instead so that they will be able to follow his decrees and keep his laws. The prophets anticipated that the time of the Messiah would be characterized by obedience to God fueled by the work of the spirit. And yet, we don't see the fullness of that reality. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant at the Last Supper, which we celebrate here each week at Mill City and which we're about to participate in together in just a moment. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, when we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion itself reminds us that we live in ordinary time, living between Pentecost and Advent. But the extraordinary thing about the new covenant is that the future is breaking into the present through the Spirit as a gift and a guide to give us glimpses of the fullness for which we hope and to empower us to stay the course of God's mission to the world that he loves. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that your mission continues. Spirit, we pray that you would fill us, equip us, and empower us to stay the course of your mission. We thank you that you have called us to this. Lord, we pray that our lives would reflect the goodness of the gospel as we await your advent, King Jesus, even now in ordinary time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.